Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey, everybody. Welcome to No Script, No Problem here on the Believe Podcast Network, the number one podcast network for professionals. Do you believe? No Script, No Problem is the show that takes you behind the curtain of the unscripted television business like never before with insight from some of the best people doing reality television, documentary series, competition shows, social experiment, game shows, and much more. From the Kardashians to Shark Tank to Queer Eye to Naked and Afraid, if it's unscripted, we'll get into it. I'm your host, Steve Berkowitz. I'm a 15-year veteran producer of unscripted television. I've done shows like Extreme Makeover Home Edition, BattleBots, and Outdaughtered. And each week... I will talk to you guys about with colleagues of mine, with talent from the reality television business, because it's not just something that you watch on television anymore. It's a cultural phenomenon. Now, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate it. It's available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Podcasts. And you can follow me on Twitter at Steve Berkowitz and Instagram at Steve M. Berkowitz. I couldn't get it. The same, you know, of course not. If you're interested in advertising on this show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Okay, after that wonderful introduction, it's time to get started. Today, my guest is a very talented network executive, producer, writer, director, overall good guy, friend of mine. He's currently the VP of programming at the Paramount Network, overseeing shows like Bar Rescue and Ink Master, as well as the I Am series. Previously, He's been the showrunner on Top Chef. He's also done Amazing Race and Auction Kings, amongst many, many other shows. Please welcome Chaz Gray. Howdy, Steve. Thanks for having me. Is that a good, good intro? That was a good intro. Okay. But uh, can we talk fantasy football instead? Oh, we, we could talk fantasy Does football. Does your audience, audience know you made it to the finale? Uh, I have the final? not. No, I have not gotten into that. Um, I'm still kind of disappointed that I came up a little short. That last game, I'm, you know, I feel like I made a few few choices at the last moment that really just ruined my chances. I have not seen a finale in 11 years, so you did good. (laughs) (laughs) Well, we we can, you know, we should do another podcast on fantasy football. We can... Well, no one should listen to my advice when it comes to fantasy football. I can advise on how to draft very poorly. That's that's kind of what I did. Boy, the, your whole saying is, I hate my team. Mm-hmm. Like, that is... I hate my team before I draft my team. <laughs> All right, well, we will talk about something that you are much better at than fantasy football, which is unscripted television. It is something that you uh, you literally got into back in the early days when before I ever even started watching reality TV. I mean, you were there from almost the genesis. Amazing Race Season 1. Are you trying to age me? Is that what's I'm not aging right now? you. No, I'm giving Is that you credit. Where we're going? I'm giving you credit. Oh, okay. We're talking origin stories then. Yes, I'm giving you credit because I always appreciate when people can talk about starting a franchise. Amazing Race, as I think you would agree, is one of the most iconic franchises, not just in unscripted, but in television. So I'd like to start with kind of what was it like to start Amazing Race to make it that first season and how did it become a hit? Well, I think that, you know, what's interesting about the show is that we really didn't have anything else to base ourselves on. Survivor had, hadn't come out yet. Yeah. Uh, really kind of MTV real world started it all. Yeah. But we were something so different because the world was our game board. Right. Which was both really exciting and terrifying at the same time. Right. Because you really didn't know what is going to happen, which I think is the appeal to it is that you have, uh, you know, couples traveling around the world, racing across the world, and truly anything can happen. Right. Uh, which I think makes it very exciting, but also really, really challenging, obviously, to produce it, because you have no control. So uh, you just kind of roll with it and hope uh, you get great stories. So Real World was uh, 92, and then Survivor's like, what, 2000? 2000. 2000. And so you guys were how far? We were 2001, 2001. We were right after. Okay. But we had, so we had shot it before Survivor had come out. Okay, so... Was there, you know, because one of the great things about race is how authentic and kind of sporadic and crazy that it feels. Was that the plan all, all along? Or, like, how how much of it well, was... Well, you know, yeah. you really don't have that map at that time. You yeah. really are just uh, really almost following it. I mean, obviously we have rules because we have compliance sure. rules. But we really didn't know then what we know now. 
Of course. And I think, uh, you know, we just had a lot of really great storytellers, a, ro- a lot of great cinematographers. It's true. And yeah. a great concept. And it just somehow all came together and worked. And you can't predict. Obviously, you know, no. we, we have no, no idea what it what works and what doesn't. But, you know, we knew we were doing something special. We just didn't know it would connect with the audience the way it did. Well, that to that point about you knew it was something special, um, in those days, like those early days, it was, you know, Survivor became a phenomenon, but then it was kind of like, okay, it was magic in a bottle. What made you know that this was something well, special? Well, and I, I, you know, we've talked to this about this before, is that I hate when people, I shouldn't use the word hate, but um, I have a disdain when people talk about nonfiction storytelling versus fictional yeah, storytelling. Yeah. Um, to me, it's good storytelling or bad storytelling. You're Correct. telling a story. And I get frustrated with a lot of modern reality shows where there's no conscious storytelling. They're just cutting together beats and just throwing it out sure. there. And I think that you know, the magic is we were telling really great stories. We had really great characters, and we knew it was very compelling. Plus, you get to see the world, so there's fun with True. it. But at the end of the day, what's interesting is that we really thought that it would feel more like a race, more like a live sporting event. Yeah. But it really is the race is the backdrop to what's going on in these characters. And we had great casting, great characters, and great yeah. stories. And really, when you watch the race, that's what it's about. It's yes. not really about watching a marathon race. It's really about you know, rooting for characters or rooting against characters and seeing their journey. And that's, the, that's how it happened, really. Yeah. What was the biggest challenge early on, season one, season two, which is when you worked on Amazing Race? What were the biggest challenges that you guys had to overcome? I think in you know, season one, it's just figuring out that balance between race and character. Yeah. And with any new show, you have to figure out what the tone is, what the pacing is, uh, your storytelling techniques. And that really was a challenge with season one. Yeah. Um, for season two, because I didn't go out in the field in season one, okay. I was in, I was just in the bays in season one, season two, it just was, holy crap, this is crazy. Right. These, you know, who knows what can happen. And you see cats running across the street and running through woods <laughs> and you're in, you know, the middle of a jungle in Thailand or, you know, in a city in Rome and you just don't know what's going to happen, and you have no control. You can't stop them. Right. And you're hoping you get the shots and hoping you're getting the story, and it's it's kind of a miracle it works, but it does somehow. But the 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 point you just made in terms of you can't really stop them. I think that is something that really is tremendous about Amazing Race. A lot of the shows we do now, a lot of the shows even in the past ten years, that's the opposite of what we do. Right. We tell the the cast, okay, stop, stop, stop. How did you guys do that? How do they do it even now with right. let the cast just go? Well, it's two things. And honestly, it's it's interesting because I've used that lesson throughout my career. Um, if you watch Bar Rescue, there aren't a lot of stops and starts. It yeah. really, I try to, I believe that reality is more interesting than anything fake or scripted um, in our world. So I embrace that. Yeah. And I try to make sure that the camera and the production is not interfering with that process because that's yeah. that's when you get the gold. And uh, trying to remove production from the experience that these characters are having sure. is something that's really important. And uh, so, you know, on my sets, you rarely see a lot of that stop, start type thing. Uh, as much as possible, we try to work around what the cast is experiencing. And I think that really started with race because that you have to on race. Yeah. And I try to carry that over as much as I can to my other shows. What uh, memories do you have? You said that you're running across streets and things like that. You know, obviously great travel experiences. What kind of experiences do you remember the most? I think, uh, are we talking race here? Yeah, amazing race. Race, uh, you know, actually like the, the, and this is the greatest job ever. The greatest job ever is when you're scouting really? the countries um, because it happens before production, obviously, okay. and you're assigned a country, and your job is to do the coolest, most interesting, most crazy things that that country has to offer <laughs> and try to figure out a route from that. So it's awesome for someone that loves adventure. Right. Uh, so a case in point, we were in Cape Town, South Africa, and I was testing a game where we row a kayak out uh, to this this small island where seals kind of uh, mate and they, they okay. you know, they play around and it's, we thought it'd be a really fun game. So I'm kayaking out to test it 
And I hear a noise to the right of me, and four feet away, a 50-foot right whale breaches. Oh, wow. And it just was really magic. Yeah. Like, you know, I'm sitting here, hey, you know, here's a kid from Atlanta, and I'm halfway across the world in a kayak, and a whale breaches next to yeah. me, and that's my job. So that's, that's, those sort of things are really special. Um, so, you know, anyone that could try for that job, it's a great <laughs> job to have. I would, I would say, uh, it was one of the things I was thinking about before this is that is one of the nice things about what we do in Unscripted is you can, you know, I'm from Ohio, you know, you're from Atlanta and like, you know, we can, in the same year, we can go from shooting a show about, you know, an amazing race or I could do Extreme Makeover Homage and then later that year I can be in Hawaii doing a dating show. What we do is kind of crazy and it's wide open, and I think right. I'd, I'd be curious well, to hear. Well, yeah, because yeah. that's the interesting thing is that, you know, I I was a first-generation reality person, which means I failed at something else. And for <laughs> me, it was writing. I wanted to be a scripted TV writer. Sure. And I really thought my career was going to be hanging out in a tiny writer's room with eight other writers and, uh, you know, leftover pizza and, you know, stale Coke and, you know, that's <laughs> <laughs> been sitting around that's all day. Sounds very glamorous. So, uh it's been such an adventure is that the people we met, the the places we've yeah. seen, uh, it's really, really been a special ride. So I wouldn't trade that for anything. Nice. And um, so as you were saying, you're, you're, that first generation, you saw really the explode, that early explosion, is, as you've always said, it, it was the wild, wild west. You know, shows like you saw shows like The Cut and Miracle Workers, Amish in the City, which was a really interesting show because now we see show, you know, networks like TLC and a &E, which will dip their toes into the Amish. But that was an interesting show in, in terms of people like showing that community will, for the first time. Will, what was fascinating about it is it was kids on Rumspringa. So you had 18 to 22-year-olds experiencing the role for the first time. Yeah. And what's fascinating is that hearing – what the first time they see an escalator or the beach right. or the ocean, but being able to communicate it in an adult way right. was so fascinating. The things that we take for granted, and they hadn't experienced any of that. So for me, it was really edifying to be around those kids and really special and really interesting. And that, to me, again, is, is one of the great things about Unscripted is, whereas, you know, Scripted does an amazing job and they tell dramas and comedies, we get to see eye-opening experiences for other people and that you can't really do with a scripted show. What other kind of you know uh, experiences in your unscripted career have you seen where you you know see another person go through something that you know they, that changes their lives or is, makes a difference in their lives? Whether it's on Bar Rescue or Top Chef, something like that. Right. I mean, that's you know, it's really interesting. You know, shows like you know both those shows truly, truly change people's lives. And it's fascinating to see someone that was a really talented sous chef yeah. who's never got a chance and they to, to actually own their own restaurant. And they come on Top Chef and they do really, really well. And all of a sudden, a year later, they've gotten investors and they're opening their first restaurant. Right. So it's really, really impactful to see them succeed in their dream that they never thought they could. Um, same thing, you know, with, with you know, Bar Rescue. Um being able to truly, truly affect people's lives right. and businesses, uh, you know, that's a special thing. Obviously, you know, some of the shows are frivolous and fun and sure. different, and yeah. some some series you do actually have weight and meaning. Right. Um, but, you know, it's ultimately, for me, it's really about telling the story and, and engaging right. in that and diving deep into whatever kind of the storytelling process is. Uh, so that's what fascinates me, whether it's dealing with housewives or yes. chefs or lawyers exactly. or doctors or, you know, bartenders. Right. Um, getting back to a little bit of the, the early days, those Wild West days, why do you think that reality TV kind of was able to push past that period where a lot of people thought it was just going to be a trend, it would die? Because I remember that period, you know, where right. it was like, oh, it'll go away. Why do you think it was able to kind of keep keep going, the, the momentum kept going? I think, you know, it's... There's so many worlds to explore, and I think that reality, when it's effective, does it in entertainment entertaining way. Agreed. So, you know, some docs could be maybe, I love documentaries, but some right. could be a little dry in telling these stories. True. When we tell stories of chefs or doctors or sailors or surfers, yeah. we do it in a kind of an interesting package, I think. Yes. And I think that a lot of the audience thought that would 
run out or be stale, but yeah. it really, really is just a different way of telling stories and telling real stories that I think are exciting, and I think it's endless, Yeah, the, the, the genres and the type of stories you can tell. Yeah, I think when you can do something like what Lifetime did with Surviving R. Kelly, and you can do something like what you guys do with Ink Master or Bar Rescue, and then HGTV can do their whole thing with the entire network of teaching people what, how to flip, flip houses, it does, it opens up a world of massive opportunity, you know, massive options for people to watch. And that is incredible. And then, you know, you all, people want options. They want a la carte in terms of content right. to watch. Um, you, so you, you know, you moved into the, the world of the food space. And I'm curious because that is a very specific genre that has also kind of taken right. off. Um, how did you kind of, you know, move into the top chef space, the, top, the the food world? Well, I don't know if you've ever had this opportunity, but it's only happened to me once. Okay. I was a huge, huge fan as a viewer of Top Chef. Top Chef, okay. I loved the show, watched every episode, and uh, when they called and gave me the opportunity to run the show, obviously. Yeah, you, know, you jumped at I it. jumped at that. Uh, but that's how that happened. It was purely they reached out to me wow, to run okay. it. And have you had that happen before where you're a fan of a show? Extreme and... Makeover Home Edition, obviously I didn't run it, but that was a show I had I had watched a lot, and I obviously I respected the fact that they were helping people. And as you know, in our business, that's there's a rare moment, there's a rare type of show where you're able to really, to your point, impact people's lives and help them. That was a show I'd always wanted to do, and I had to interview three times. And I finally, you know, I finally got it. So that was my experience like that. Was it everything you hoped it would be? It was. Oh, good. Two good, seasons. Good. Two seasons where I traveled. I didn't travel around the world, but I traveled around the country, and I was able to, you know, impact people's lives and see people's lives change literally in one week. Right. So, and it's coming back, and so we'll see. There you go. We'll see what they do. But that's the thing, you know, it was fascinating to me about, you know, the first time that uh, that you know on the set with Top Chef is that the two things that are fascinating about it is how, the scale of that show. Okay. The set is huge because you have to build the greatest kitchen right. on the planet. Um, it's got to house 18 amazing chefs with ingredients, with stovetops, with you know utilities, with yeah. everything they need to make incredible, incredible dishes. So it is a mammoth monster kitchen that's built every every year. Every year. Right. Uh, so the first time you walk in, it's it's a little shocking. It's a little overwhelming. It feels like a right. big scripted set in that way. Um, but the fascinating thing about it is that once you f first put a challenge up there right. that you think they, there's no way they can pull it off, like make a turkey dinner with a spoon, <laughs> and they're able to do something, you yeah. realize how ingenious they are and, right. and how true artists they are. And that's the thing that I was overwhelmed every single day about how talented these chefs are right. and how creative they are. And it made me honestly think about food in a different way and what you possibly can pull off and accomplish um, if you're truly, truly passionate, if you're truly, truly an artist. It's, it's pretty amazing. One of the things that I admire about that show is the kind of balance between uh, the story of the chefs and, you know, you give Padma and, and Tom great credit, but then the food is also the star, too, and how you guys were able to balance kind of, okay, we've got to talk about the chefs and their stories and the balance and the competition, and then give time for the, the talent, but then the food is still the star. Well, here's right? the fascinating thing about it is I've had fans come up to me and say, "How dare you guys eliminate Chef X?" Right. And they get so passionate about it and so frustrated and felt this person was gypped and robbed. I'm like, "But you didn't taste the food. Right. You truly have no idea what that food tastes like." And I think that's the amazing thing, and that's the magic trick about food shows, is that. You can only play along sure. at home in the way that the, the judges and um, the hosts actually explain what's going on. And it's really, really fascinating in that. Unlike, you know, Ink Master or Project Runway, where everyone can play along. Sure. You're seeing that sure, dress. You're seeing, it, right. you're seeing that tattoo. Um, yeah, you are seeing the visuals of the food, but you're not tasting you're it. You're tasting it, right. And that's a fascinating thing is that um, the judges are able to express that taste to the audience. And that's the thing that's so amazing to me about the good the good hosts that they're able to do that. Right. Well to that point though, Food Network does a lot of shows where you there's takeaways. Like you can watch a lot of Food Network shows and you walk away, oh my God, I learned how to make this. Right. Well, that's interesting. And you get that from Top Chef, but it really is 
a competition. It's about yeah. how and amazing also, I mean, the these chefs are. are so high level. That's what I mean. Like it's not, you know, it's it's the takeaway is like, wow, I'd love to try that dish. That's what I mean. More than I think I could try to make That's it. That's what I mean. And I guess because it's so challenging to try to make these. Correct. If, if I, I guess, ever tried to, I would fail miserably. Yeah, and I guess that's my question. My question is like, how does is it a different audience that watches those shows on Food Network? And then Top Chef is a whole different audience? Or do you think they're similar? I don't think so. Like, you know, I I, I love Top Chef, obviously, but I'll watch Worst Chefs of America. You know, it's just yeah. a different, uh, you know, different story. And I think they're both equally fun. And I think you have different takeaways from all that. And, you know, it's fascinating. It's like when you really think about food was probably the first reality show with Julia Child. Like that oh, probably wow. started it all. And we don't give her enough credit, but that's really where that whole idea yeah. from, you know, cooking in front of an audience and telling those stories came from. And obviously, you know, she was an amazing character. But it's fascinating that that's really kind of where that whole genre began yeah. 50, 60 years ago. Is there, um, is there a moment on Top Chef or a challenge that you always will kind of remember that you always talk about as like that was the... I loved when we did Jimmy Fallon. So okay. to me, that was a really amazing experience because uh, we heard that Jimmy wanted to do the show. And I kind of pitched to Jimmy the idea that our, our cooks, our chefs, would walk into the stage and then become part of the Tonight Show. Okay. And I'd asked him, hey, you know, do you mind if can we have your announcer and one camera and they kind of walk into your world? And he goes, Chaz, you're crazy. I'm giving you everybody. Yeah. Of course, we're a reality show. I'm like, I can't afford your whole right. group. And he's right. like, no, I'll take care of it. And he was such a fan of the show that we walked in, and he had all his cameras, all right. his props. The entire roots were there. So they really, really did walk into the experience of being on The Tonight Show. And it was so much fun and exciting. And that's one of those things that really, really was a blast. Yeah. But a funny thing with that is that um, so I wrote Jimmy's script. Wow. And, of course, I was so nervous about it. Of course. And spent a week every night writing it, <laughs> writing it, rewriting it. And I was so proud. I was like, it's really funny. And I sent it over the, uh, to Jimmy, and he called me. He's like, hey, Chaz, um, yeah, I like the script, but w would you mind terribly if I can have my writers <laughs> look at it? Oh, Chaz, you're not a comedy writer. I know, uh -huh. I know. And that's why, of course, they rewrote it. And were you hurt? No, it was so amazing. Like <laughs> that's when I realized, okay, this is a pro. And they 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 basically just they didn't change structure. They just pump, they just pumped up every line of dialogue yeah. and actually made it way funnier. So I was like, okay, th those are real professionals there. <laughs> now you did the Boston season. I did do Boston. Okay, Fenway. We right? did Fenway. Which how was that? As ba as a baseball as fan, a baseball fan shot yeah. at Fenway we also Park. did in DC we did Washington Nationals Park. So okay, me me loving sports. Yes. We had two of them. So what was uh, it like shooting at Fenway? It was we were the first show ever allowed to shoot on the field in front of the Green Monster. That's and awesome. it was so incredible to be able to walk around and the groundskeeper at first was was very protective and very nervous sure. and then kind of, you know, got into it and was letting us, like, go on the pitching mound. And we actually threw a baseball. So uh, that was really an amazing experience being on that field. So something I never expected to do. Now, the dishes themselves, like, do you guys, like, the process? Because, like, on a lot of shows, right, producers were heavily involved. We see, like, when I did the sneaker competition show, right. I would see the sneaker. I would be able to touch it, feel it. Did you guys ever taste the food, or was this literally no, they made the dish and it goes to it, the judges? It goes, they make it. One of the things we really pride ourselves with Top Chef, which I know a lot, not all food shows do, is that they taste it the way it's meant to. Okay. And a lot of times, the challenge with food, obviously, is it gets cold. Sure. So we immediately go into judging. That's immediately. interesting. And we really pride ourselves it's real. Like, they don't consult with us. Like, sure. you know, Tom and Padma and the guest judges are truly, truly judging. We have no idea what's going to happen. We, we don't know who's going to get eliminated, yeah. uh, who they're going to love, who gets the best dish. Uh, so it really happens, you know, in real time sure. as they are tasting those dishes. Now, uh, the D.C. season, uh, what do you kind of take away from that? D shooting in D.C., I'm sure... 
was not the easiest I got, thing. Well, the interesting uh, here's a fascinating thing because it's it's actually relevant to today is Nancy Pelosi actually did a taste with us. She did a challenge with us, and uh, they had called and said. Chaz, you have 15 minutes to prep her, and then she's going to go and taste the dishes the and judge it. The speaker, okay. yes. And so she came in, and she is so incredibly bright yeah, and erudite. And she came in and admitted, I know nothing about food. <laughs> and I spent, like, 15 minutes, like, talking food terms with her, what she might experience, and a little thing about each one of our you yeah. know, 10 to 12 chefs sure. that are left. And after 15, 20 minutes, she went right out there. She remembered people's names, backstories. It's great. And she really, really, really impressed me. Yeah, we so don't, that was interesting. Yeah. I, think, I, I love kind of stories like that where you have a guest, ju- you have a you know, celebrity or a guest, and people don't give them necessarily enough credit, and then they blow you away. Yeah, like and it's hard. Like, you know, yeah. she's around professionals that right. do this for a living. Sure. And, uh, you know, and having to come up with, things that sound reasonable in something that's actually people are trained for half their lives to be able to talk about food. Um, and then obviously, you know, so to, to talk about food, you know, we have to talk about Bourdain. Oh, yeah, of So Bourdain did, uh, he guested on the New York uh, season, and I never experienced anyone that could talk about food in that way. Really? That could really... You know, if you've watched the show, the way he had the ability to express food in a way that you could taste and feel it. Absolutely. Even if you knew nothing about food. And that was a gift he had. Yeah. And it just was, that was one of the most amazing people to be around. And I found him so endlessly fascinating. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a good transition in terms of what we have seen in the, you know, the past like decade is people like Bourdain, Gordon Ramsay. They've become icons. These chefs and personalities have really become celebrities themselves. Celebrity chefs or people opening up restaurants, all because of their appearances on these these shows. What did you see on Top Chef or what have you seen uh, and experienced on these shows that kind of is a good thing or what do you credit as a, a reason for this kind of explosion of celebrity in the chef world? I think it's... You know, the fame has something to do with it, is people like to go into restaurants. You notice that a lot of these people, when they build their restaurants, they build it with open kitchens. And there's a reason they do that. They do that so that people can come in and fans can come in and see the chefs cooking. So there's some of that kind of sexy appeal to that. So, you know, there's something exciting about that, is that uh, fans can come in and see their favorite chef actually cooking the food for them. But also, I think that a lot of these shows give opportunities to true talent that may not have had that opportunity without it. So it is discovering and finding truly, truly talented chefs that without these shows, they may have, you know, been a line cook at a great, at the Palms for 20 years and never had that opportunity to open their own restaurant and really kind of tell their food story. So I think that's something that's really positive that all these food shows yeah. have been able to do. When you're working on Top Chef, do you see some of these people and you're like, wow, they are so good, I can see them opening up their own restaurant and things like that? Or is it? are you surprised to then go to, you know, when you're out in L.A. or you're looking for a restaurant and you hear that it's one of their restaurants, one of these contestants? No, I think that, you know, every, every show has a different level of cast. Yeah of expertise. And I think Top Chef really prides itself on having chefs that are so close to opening their own restaurant. Yeah. So I think even the first chef that's eliminated is good enough to open a successful restaurant. That's interesting. So I think that's different than a lot of shows. I think every single one of them has that ability to go on and actually do great things in the food world. So that that's something that's special, I think, about that show is just the quality of chefs that, that are in that environment. And usually when they fail, because it's really hard. Yeah. Um, they're under such pressure and time constraints. And, you know, they don't know what the challenges are. Sure. They don't know what the restrictions are. They don't know what the ingredients are. And oftentimes it's a really tough place. You know, like when we talk about Fenway, 
they're cooking these meals where people usually just heat up, you know, uh, food at uh, at the ballpark, Go and get they're a trying dog. to do, yeah. Go get a dog. Yeah, so they're they're using the, that same equipment to yeah. try to do something that's really special, and usually they accomplish it, which is pretty profound. You you talked a little bit about how the high level of of talent on uh, for the chefs, right? I think that is one one of the interesting things about that show versus some of the other competition shows. How did you guys, ca- you know, the casting process in terms of finding people who were right. that high level, but also then competing for a prize? Well, here's another thing, another great job. Yeah. Our casting group, who are culinary experts, yeah. they travel across the country and try these people's food. Oh. So we may find submissions of great cast members or great characters, but they actually fly out and have them make dishes for them. Uh, so they really are tested and have to be really good to pass, to actually get cast on the show. Another really fun job. (laughs) That, that does sound (laughs) like a fun job. How has the show, and I know this, how has the show changed the way you look at food? Oh, shoot. (laughs) I I mean, I I know. You've been out to dinner with me. I've been out to dinner with you. It's made me a snoot and a snob and kind of ruined dining for me. I, before that, I just was... And innocent, loved any kind of food, and it's changed my perspective on the dining experience. And it's elevated that to a really annoying level, as anyone that's actually gone out to eat with me can attest to, as Bar Rescue has for bars and sure. kind of ruined the bar experience. So I'm basically ruining my own experience by these shows. Um, so Top Chef Emmy winning show and now still you know still going, which is so hard to do in this in this day and age to keep a franchise going. In your opinion, uh, why do you, what do you think is the kind of the the reason why it's still able to be successful? And even when you were on uh, the show, how do you keep a, a format like that fresh? I think it's it's a number of things. I think one is that the standard of our chefs are so high that they come up with such amazing dishes. I think it's fun to watch them succeed. Yeah. Um, I think that uh, Tom and Padma add a lot to that. We have great, great hosts, great, great judges, and I think they're very compelling and interesting. I think the challenges, we've spent a lot of time making unique challenges, and uh, the most successful are obviously based on the city we're in, and the city becomes a character in that, and I think that's really exciting. And I think the last is just good storytelling, is that we you never see on Chef, and this is a testament to both Bravo and Magical Elves who produced the show, is that it's never just thrown together. Right. It's so, so focused on telling these stories that are beyond the food stories. You know, we tell the food stories, obviously, but we have to tell character stories as well. Right. And I think there's just a time and passion that everyone feels when they're working on Top Chef, and I think that keeps it so fresh and strong every season. From being a showrunner, being a producer, you've taken another step now. You are a network executive at Paramount. Okay, you've been there a little over three years. I have. Okay. How, what is the difference, in, in your opinion? What's the biggest difference between producing, you're running around in the field, or doing insane hours in the yeah, NFA? Yeah, that, that's a difference, yes. really, is the I hours. Mean, you texting with you, you'd be past midnight, <laughs> Chaz, you want to grab a drink, I'm in the bed at bed. Yeah, exactly. Midnight. Well, as you know, like, yeah. it's... Uh, I mean, it's, it's, it's exhilarating and exhausting yeah. to actually be on the set all the time, um, as I'm sure you're aware yes. you deal with. And we've talked about this, is that it, it's, it's tough in that. Yeah. It's exciting, but it's hard. Yeah. Um, you have a little more balance on the network side. But it's different is that I think the big difference is on the network side, I handle a bunch of shows at once. True. And I think uh, when you're show running you really are 100% invested in that one show. And you get so deep yeah. in that show where now I really can't afford to be. I've got to bounce between four, five, six shows a, a, a day. So I think that's probably the biggest difference. And um, at Paramount, you do oversee Ink Master, Bar Rescue, both big hits. Um, we talked about celebrity chefs. John Taffer for Bar Rescue has become a celebrity in his own right. How do you explain... The kind of, you know, his success not going from not just a, a good character on a show, good host, 
to really, he's, you know, he is an icon now. Well, the thing about John, I think this is, this is why the show works. The show works because it really is real. Yeah. Um, John is so passionate and he feels so much joy when a bar works, but so much anger when he, when it's not working. Sure. He's not acting. Right. Uh, he really, really connects with, with the, the employees or the owners that really try and are trying to make a difference. And he really gets furious with the ones that are either lazy or foolish or greedy. And he really is invested in all these stories. And I think that's why it's so compelling is that he's just not showing up and you know, being a presence and sure, then walking out. Sure. He really is involved and really is part of that. And that's what makes it so special is that he cares so much about every bar we go to. I wanted to, to ask you about, you know, obviously you're working now, at, you know, at a linear network, but we're entering, we are in a crazy time with, you know, the Netflixes, the Hulus, the Amazons, and now we're, we're about to get Quibi. We've got Disney Plus. We're, you know, entering the streaming wars. Uh, you know, you dealt with the Wild West at the very beginning. How have things changed, and are we really headed back to where we were? I mean, here's my feeling is that people get – I think they're, they're, they're too caught up in this being such a paradigm shift. Okay. And to me, it's really more about how the audience can digest and fans can digest these shows. Okay. But to me, it doesn't affect storytelling. Storytelling is good or bad. Yeah. Shows are good or bad. It's just how they're digested is changing. Yes. So I don't think there's massive shifts in that. You look at, you know, when music went through this, it didn't change the way music was made. Correct. It changed the way that we consume music. So we got it. Right. And I really think that's really the change that's, that we're seeing is that uh, the audience is able to connect and, and find their shows more than they may have in a linear environment. Yeah, I mean... That was, that was boring, wasn't it? Oh, well, no. I mean, I think... You asked the question, though, I so you deserve it. I did ask the question. I, I deserve a boring answer. I don't think it's a boring answer. I think, to me, it, content... Um, and Aaron Ryder hates the word content. But uh, I think whatever you want to call it, whether it's content or shows, it, it's become a la carte. You know, I mean, we want to right. find what we want to watch. And whether that's I want to watch Bar Rescue all day on Sundays or it's I love watching homes being renovated on HGTV or I love food shows. It's about how, what's the easiest way for me to find what I watch. And right. so that's why Netflix for some people is great because I can just scroll through. And if I want to watch a movie, I can find a movie. If I want to watch a documentary, I can find a documentary. And so uh, to me, the great thing is that now we have so many options to make it a la carte. Right. The tough thing, as whether you know producers or developers, is that it's hard to figure out who are we producing for, who are we pitching, who are we developing for. So I think the next few years will be interesting to kind of see how the dust settles and figure out you know uh, is does it is there are there bundles or right. you know do do, te do these networks or streaming services team up how how it how the dust settles how things work out and that's and, you know it's interesting because I think that in that way you're like I think most great producers is that you really get in the weeds and really think about that stuff to me honestly all I do is like is it a great story yeah are they great characters they don't want to be in this world yeah and true. if I can answer yes to those I'm in right uh, so I, I, I don't really think in that detail about whether it's going to play in Iowa or not uh, <laughs> I just want to tell good stories in a fun world. So that's that's really kind of my decision-making process, and I guess I've been lucky that it's kind of worked out in a, in a good way. You've always been, you know, very passionate about storytelling and that unscripted, you know, as you said earlier, that unscripted tells just, uh, you know, that the stories that are told there are equally valuable to what is told in the scripted world. Um, what is it, like, what is your style of storytelling? What is it that you yeah, like I to think, see? So the process is totally different. Like, when I was trying to, you know, working as a writer, you start with an empty page. Yeah. And the first thing you do is fade in, and then you let your imagination run. To me, documentary and, and nonfiction filmmaking, it's basically like someone stood at the top of the stairs with a 300-page novel, yeah. tore the pages out of the book and just threw them down the stairs. Sure. And our job is to go down that staircase and pick up those pages and put them in the right order to tell a compelling story. <laughs> Which is sometimes not very, not Which very easy. Can, yeah, and I think that, you know, when bad when you get to bad storytelling in our in our world, 
It's just people take that first step. Yeah. And they pick up a page and go, that's interesting. And they hold on that and they put that first. And they walk to the next stair. Yeah. Pick up a page and go, that's interesting. And put that second. Yeah. And they walk down the stairs and they go, hey, here's my, here's my show. And I think that, you know, we need to think deeper than that. We really need to tell and think about what kind of story we're telling in the same way that scripted would. Yeah. And really, really giving our care, our people, um, our cast, the kind of s- stories they deserve and not just throwing stuff out that happens and really, really digging deep into their souls and their stories and being true to them. It's an interesting point because, like, I often will defend unscripted to people and say that, you know, whether it's, you know, the Kardashians is really just a sitcom. Right. It's really just a family sitcom. Uh, you know, an Extreme Makeover Home Edition is a, you know, it's a feel-good show. And we do, you know, you know, Born This Way was a show that opened up eyes to people about, a, you know, a, you know about a, a group of people who ne- never got attention. Right. And that's what's interesting is that reality is lumped into one category yeah. and it really shouldn't. Yeah. Because within it, there's so many subgenres. Yeah. And so many different things. I think that people can find great storytelling all across the board and it shouldn't all be lumped into one thing. And one subgenre that you've done a lot of is travel. Right. Right, which I think has changed immensely you know, over the course of, of time, you know, you did shows like Out of Egypt along with Amazing Race, um, and you've traveled a lot um, around the world in 80 Plates, right. you know, which was a food show. Um, so, you know, and I think now you see that Travel Channel is no longer... Traveling? The tra- yeah, they <laughs> no longer travel unless they're looking for ghosts um, or monsters. What is your kind of opinion on kind of the the way travel is is used in the unscripted genre? I think, I mean, to me personally, I have such a curiosity about the world, and I wish we were doing more shows, uh, you know, like we did 10, 15 years ago. Yeah. Whether it's Parts Unknown or even Insomniac with Dave Attell. Oh wow! You know, yeah. which was a great show, just about really interesting people exploring the planet. And I always loved watching those shows, and I yeah. love producing those shows. And I really feel like, you know, entertainment's cyclical, and I do think there'll be a newfound passion for those type of shows. At least I hope so, because yeah. I love watching them. Because uh, I want to experience the wor- world with, you know, great characters and interesting people and awesome, fascinating places. Uh, so I'm hoping that, you know, as you know, all it takes is that one show that breaks right. back through, and then right. that that kind of changes things, and it becomes a game changer. So I'm hoping that someone out there, hopefully someone listening, even, uh, could come up with that great show that can get us back, you know, across the world. That that is an interesting point uh, in terms of like, you know, you have a, a Bourdain, uh, and then everybody wanted a show just like that. Exactly. Um, you had a John Taffer, and then everybody wanted right. a show just. Is that a problem? In our industry? I think it is a big problem, but I, I think, and it's not just confined to reality TV. I think it's all across entertainment, yeah. is that people follow the hits, but yeah. you don't realize is that it's the original things, the different things that become those hits. Yeah. And I think that's a mistake, but, you know, you get it. It's very hard to get a show on there. It's very hard to get a movie made. It's very hard to get a, a song on the radio. Yeah. So I think that a lot of times people do the safe thing, and that's that's not always the right thing. Sure. Well, I want to ask you about this. Oh, no. uh, so how heartbreaking is it to you when a show that you love doing, that you've invested so much time and effort and passion in, doesn't connect with an audience? It's devastating. It's devastating. Um, I've had a couple of those, um, specifically uh, – there's two that I can think of. The first one was the first series that I was a showrunner on. It was called Outback Nation with Jamie Dury. And as you know, as a showrunner, um, it was for FYI. So as you know, as a showrunner, you put your whole life right. into it. And I had even done the pilot. So I was literally on the pilot, waited for it to be greenlit, and then stayed on, did the eight-episode series. So I was pretty much on it for a year and developed it from a one-sheet, you know, the original pitch, all the way through the pilot and then through series. And this was with, you know, Gina McCarthy had really, it was one of the early shows that they had greenlit on FYI, and so they were excited about it. And, you know, we went down to Florida and shot it, and it was my first show, series, that I had show run. And so I was, you know, look, it was just a backyard makeover show at the end of the day. But for me, I put 
everything into it, and I wanted it to be one of FYI's first big hits. And, you know, like, I was working for J.D. Roth at Three Ball, and I wanted to impress him. I wanted it to be such a big hit. And, um, yeah, like, no one watched. Right. I mean, literally no one watched. And I was devastated. I was crushed because I think you'll agree – when you're the showrunner, you put a lot of pressure on yourself. And, Absolutely. And, and the network puts pressure on you, the production right. company. You know, if a show bombs, they don't blame the camera operators. They don't blame the editors. There's really only a couple people to look at. And I felt, and I also, I think I put a lot of pressure on myself. I took that really hard. Right. It was that. So that was one of the shows that I. But that it's I weird. There's there's not really a formula. There's you, you no. never really know. You just have to be proud of the work you do and hope that yeah. it finds an audience. Because uh, how many times have you been on shows that you're like, this is going to be a huge, huge, oh. massive hit. Yeah. And no one watches it. Yeah. And then the verse you do shows is like, oh, no one's going to watch <laughs> this show. And then it becomes it lasts for yeah. seven seasons. Yeah. And it's really fascinating how that works, I think. Did you, do you have an experience one way or the other where you did a show and you were psyched, you thought it was going to be a hit, and then it wasn't, or vice versa? You did a show and you were like, Oh, yeah. yeah. I, you know, on the positive side, two shows I thought would be massive hits. Uh, the first one was The Shot. Uh, it was for VH1, and it was about finding great photographers. Right. And I thought it was exciting and fun, and I thought everyone could play along at home sure. because everyone has a camera. Right. And it was really easy and fun to, 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 to judge and debate over who has the better photos or right. not. I thought that was going to be a huge hit, and, right. it, and it didn't. And then another one that I was so passionate about, speaking of a travel show, was a show called 36 Hours. And it was based yeah. on the New York Times I article. Remember. And we kind of set out where Anthony Bourdain's shows are kind of the cool independent movie of travel shows. Right. We want to do the glossy, James Bond, exciting adventure <laughs> travel show. And I really think we succeeded. What was the premise? Refresh my memory. So it was, uh, we had two hosts. Okay. Uh, Kyle Martino, who was uh, part of the U.S. national soccer team. Okay. And Kristen Kish, who was a top chef. Right. And uh, they traveled the world. They had 36 hours in a, a, any city around the world. Okay. And they had to do, they were tasked with doing the, the most interesting things that that city had to offer. Okay. Unexpected, cool, fascinating, cultural events or meeting people. And it just, it really was really a fascinating, great show. And it's something I'm really, really proud of and no one watched. It is devastating. It's, it's heartbreaking, isn't it? Yeah. The Sneaker Show was another one. Yeah, that, that was a great show. The, thank you. The Ultimate Sneaker Challenge for YouTube. Because I, you know, I, I love sneakers. I was very passionate about it. And that was another nine-month process and I loved all this the celebrities like James Harden and Damian Lillard that we worked with and it was the best crew loved my crew loved the producers on it and you know the first two episodes did fine and then it went behind the paywall and it was like just no one watched now I have to bust you right now for for your audience for your listening audience how many pairs of sneakers do you own uh, I think I'm up to 40 because I actually I bought another pair last night. Oh, you're up to 40? I'm up to 40. I thought it would yeah. actually be more than that, but you're no. up to 40? No, because I have a small apartment. <laughs> There's no way I can fit more But you talk about the perfect person to run that show. Yes. That was you. Like that the, was You were me. made for that. Yes. So. yes, I was. Yes, I was. Yes. But that, that, was, that was disappointing as well. But, you know, um, sometimes, you know, you get lucky and... Uh, you, know, you get lucky and you do a show like Top Chef or you do a show like Extreme Makeover Home Edition and then it's like, okay, now it's all worth All the hard work right. is worth but it. But even the failures to me, and I'd say failures loosely, but they're rewarding. Yeah. Like, you know, they're, they're, they're amazing experiences and you feel proud of those shows and somehow they didn't connect or they didn't work uh, with an audience, but it doesn't mean that they're any less special. Like, they still kind of hold a, a, a great place in my heart. I mean, it's devastating heartbreaking that you don't get yeah. to make 10 seasons of that. Sure. Uh, but it's still, it still, it feels rewarding that you got the chance to do it. Yeah, I would agree. I mean, there's two, sh two shows. I would say the Sneaker Show in particular, that was something I learned a lot from, and I cherished the, that, the experience uh, with that group of people as well as just it was fun to tell those stories and uh, being around amazingly talented designers. But then this other show for Discovery One Man Army where we got to work with Navy SEALs and Army Rangers and special all kinds of special forces guys competing against each other. That was a show who I, that I thought, you know, I was only a senior producer, but I thought for sure. That, that was, was Discovery, gonna, right? Yeah, yeah, I thought I for that sure show. that was going to be a massive hit. Right. 
only one season. Um, but that was a great experience. Just I had never worked with um, military of that level before, right. and they had great stories, and they opened up to us, and the challenges were amazing. We were blowing stuff up. And so even though it didn't do well, I enjoyed it, and um, I savored kind of the different kinds of challenges and the experiences. I'd never been around right. weapons or anything before. So I think to your point is that sometimes it doesn't do on your – devastated from an emotional standpoint but then you know you get a little bit of time and you can look back and go well I've never I had never done right. that before and so I'm a better producer or whatever well that's the something that's fascinating is that as a producer you enter a world oftentimes you don't know anything about oh yeah and you obviously were a sneaker expert so we'll take that one out <laughs> but you know whether it's you know weaponry or food or doctors lawyers yeah. whatever it might be and you really immerse yourself in that world, True. which is fascinating. You True. Know, I don't have a tattoo. I knew nothing about tattooing before I started the show. And now I can judge any tattoo and know the style of any tattoo down the street. And it's fascinating. And that's something that's really rewarding. Is I think all of us have that innate curiosity, and that makes us good at what we do. And that's part of the fun. Yeah, is really diving deep into all these different worlds. Yeah. And it, that's a rarity that we have that we're able to do in Unscripted. All right. So thank you so much. No, thank you this for was, having me. This was awesome. Thank you, Chaz. That was great. Really enjoyed having you here on No Script, No Problem. And I uh, look forward to collaborating with you uh, in 2020. Uh, for everybody else out there, if you enjoy the show, and I hope you do, please subscribe and rate it. It's available on iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can also find it at Believe.com and at Believe Podcast. You can follow me on social media. For Twitter, it's at Steve Berkowitz. And on Instagram, it's at Steve M. Berkowitz. Please remember to rate it with five stars, of course. And if you have questions for me, go ahead, put them in there, and I will try my best to answer them. Uh, if you're interested in advertising on the show, please contact Believe at Believe.com. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Until next time, I'm Steve Berkowitz for No Script, No Problem. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.